Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. And today we are joined by Amir Ali, clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of South Carolina with an expertise in hematology and BMT to talk asparaginase. Welcome to the pod, Amir. It's actually University of Southern California. Did I say, did I say South Carolina? South Carolina. Oh, that's just, that's... Both, but it's on the other side of the coast. So, so, so I'm a, I'm a big 10 guy, but now that I live in uh, an SEC country, the people around here say that they're the USC and, um, but really I got to get back to my big 10 roots now that, that the, the USC Trojans are going to be a big 10 team. So, so that's my mistake. Thanks for, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for catching that. Um, as I was telling you, it's just one take, Amir. We just we take the we take the mess ups and we just leave them all in. Um, right. I'm really glad you reached out about uh, about doing this, uh, you know, on the pod because this is, uh, you know, it's a really important drug. I do these podcasts on foundational uh, drugs and concepts in oncology, and at our practice site, you know, we'll do AML induction, but we haven't done ALL induction for younger patients, patients where you might use asparaginase in many years. Uh, and we'll get into some of that reason why. So uh, at the the last time I was living and breathing in the asparaginase world, things were much different uh, with what we know and what we do than they are now. So I'm really happy to have someone who does this on a daily basis to talk about uh, asparaginase. So before we get into that, let's just go ahead and start. Um, kind of tell us about yourself, where you trained, and um, and kind of what your clinical practice is like. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, John, for having me on. And I'm excited to contribute to this important conversation on asparaginase. So a little bit about myself. Um, I uh, did my pharmacy school at UCSF in the Bay Area. Had my first year residency at Kaiser Permanente in Orange County and my second year PGY2 residency specializing in Hemonc at USC University of Southern California. Uh, and uh, I stayed on after there, uh, after I completed the residency. And right now I'm a clinical pharmacist specialist, focused primarily on heme and BMT and uh, Excited to kind of share some of my uh, input today. Okay. And is your, are you mostly an inpatient clinician, outpatient, a little bit of both? Yeah. So I, I, I work in both practices, but primarily in the clinic. So I, I work directly with patients, see patients in the clinic, but at the same time, I round on bone marrow transplant patients in the inpatient setting. Okay. So in oncology, you know, we find it important to talk about you know, paclitaxel and the Pacific yew tree. And that really doesn't make a difference to patient care. But just for fun, tell us a little bit about, you know, the history of asparaginase and where where it all came from. Absolutely. So asparaginase probably came out in the 1970s or so. So it's been around for about 40 years. And really the main indication for asparaginase is being part of a multi-agent chemotherapy regimen for the treatment of ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So uh, when I say multi-chemotherapy regimen, really what that includes for ALL is an anthracycline, vincristine steroids, and of course, asparaginase. And arguably, and what we'll be talking about throughout this podcast today is why I think it's probably the most important part of the regimen for the treatment of ALL. Okay. All right. Well, don't keep us waiting. Let us know why you think that is. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So, you know, Just to kind of start off over here, so it's used, as you mentioned, in the pediatric setting and also AYAs as well as adults. And we've noticed uh, for AYAs and peds where 
PEG aspergenase or really any aspergenase product is used, those patients have primarily seen better outcomes. So you look at the five-year overall survival for those pediatric patients or AYAs, you see around 90% overall survival. But that number drops around 40% in adults. And of course, our goal here for these patients is to cure them. So that difference in overall survival can be attributed to different things. One is being the disease biology itself. But another factor, and what's becoming more and more of a bigger conversation, is the role of asparaginase in pediatrics versus adults. We see asparaginase used much more commonly in pediatric regimens than we see in adult regimens. So that's one of the factors that we're looking at. And we're noticing the regimens for adult, uh, adult ALL treatment plans where we include asparaginase products, we're seeing better results with those regimens. So part of the reason why we probably see um, asparaginase used more commonly in peds is because we have more experience in that setting. So, you know, we started off using asparaginase in the pediatric population. Those providers have more experience dealing with those unique toxicity profiles that we'll be talking about today. And in the adult oncologist or hematologist setting, there was not as much experience there. So, you know, there was some hesitancy dealing with this pretty toxic medication. Okay. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. Let's um let's start first. Um, this will be a quick question. Where else do we use asparaginase besides ALL? So you can use it in so there's a lot of clinical trials that are ongoing right now, including an AML. Um, so primarily in my setting, we're really using it for the ALL patients, both pediatric and adults. You can use it for T cell ALL or B cell ALL as well. That's an important distinction. Pretty much just ALL, but of course, we think, at least in general, most AL, when we think of ALL, at least I think of B cell ALL, but yeah, there are T cell ALLs out there as well. Um, now, when we talk about asparaginase, um, I don't know, there, there are a lot of different products uh, and some new ones that have come out. So, so take us through the, um, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical landscape from uh, asparaginase compounds. Sure, absolutely. So there are three main types of asparaginin products, asparaginase products out there. One being the native asparaginase. This was the first one that came out in the 70s that I mentioned. So this is a short-acting E. coli-derived asparaginase product. Um, really, this is really no longer available in the market anymore. We've moved on to newer formulations of asparaginase. Uh, so that's the first type, E. coli-derived native asparaginase, short-acting. The second type that we'll be discussing is the long-acting E. coli-derived asparaginase. So you think about PEG asparaginase or brand name Oncospar. Main difference you see here is that it's A, it's still E. coli-derived, though it has a pegylated form to it. So the pegylation that's added to the asparaginase makes it have a longer half-life. Uh, so that's what you're seeing there. Next, you have asparlas, which is calasperges. Uh, this is really the main difference here is it has a more stable PEG linker, which leads to a longer, even longer half-life than PEG aspergenase. So uh, for Oncospar, PEG aspergenase, that's about a Q2 week dosing interval. For calasperginase, that's a Q3 week dosing interval. The third type that we're going to be talking about is also a short acting, uh, but it's derived from not E. coli. It's derived from Erwinia, chrysanthemum. So it's a, it's a different uh, derivation there. So you took a different product. So Erwinase, 
uh, was on the market before that was the first uh, Erwinia derived uh, aspergenase out there, but that was discontinued due to manufacturing issues. The most recent approval that we have for an Erwinia derived um, aspergenase product is called Rylans. So this was approved about a year ago in both the adult and pediatric population. Uh, per the package insert, it's about Q48 hour dosing intramuscularly, but we have some new ASH data uh, that makes it Monday, Wednesday, Friday dosing, which makes it easier for our patients in clinic that come in outpatient. So the, the key differences between these products are kind of, you know, half-life, and that has to do with pegylation. And then what is the, um, the biologic source, E. coli or Erwinia? bacteria. Now, regardless of that, they all work the same. So how do the, how do these drugs work? How does asparaginase work? Yeah. All of them have the same mechanism of action. And actually, when I talk about the mechanism, I, I really find this fascinating. And it's actually one of my favorite mechanisms to talk about. So uh, we all have uh, asparagine uh, in, our, in our bodies. It's in our plasma. It's a non-essential amino acid used to make proteins, uh, very important uh, in our bodies. Now, there are two differences here that I'll, I'll focus on. One uh, being cancer cells, leukemic cells specifically, are not able to make asparagine intracellularly. They have to pull the asparagine from the plasma to function, right? While non-cancerous cells, normal cells, are able to make asparagine intracellularly. So they don't rely on plasma asparagine. They don't need to pull plasma asparagine at all. They can just make it intracellularly. So what we're doing here is we're using asparaginase, which catabolizes enzymatically the uh, asparagine in the body, in the plasma. So you're breaking out and breaking up and taking out the asparagine that's in the plasma. And when you're doing that, the cancerous cells can no longer pull asparagine from uh, the plasma. And when they no longer have asparagine at all, it causes apoptosis or cell death. But the non-cancerous cells are able to still make it intracellularly, so it doesn't affect them at all. And um, when uh, asparaginase uh, basically you know, cleaves asparagine, one of the byproducts of that is ammonia, correct? And that may be important when we get down to some of our, our toxicity here uh, here in a second. Um, and we'll also maybe come back to this too, is that the amino acid, um, if you're like me and you don't remember your biochemistry all that well, but if you just Google the amino acids, you'll see asparagine and glutamine are very similar in structure, almost identical, but not obviously, but very similar. And we also may revisit that as we went in our toxicity discussion. Okay, so you've... you've You've kind of alluded to this as we talk about, uh, you know, kind of the the efficacy and the effectiveness of asparaginase. Uh, and you talked about, you know, the history in peds um, and then moving into the AYA, the adult and young adolescent population, which roughly is up to age 30, 35, 39, 40, depending on on um, uh, it, it's a gray area, you know, it, and it kind of um, uh, before you get to gray hair. Uh, that's where the AYA stops, but where it stops is, is, I guess, up for debate. But take us through kind of the efficacy of this, and, and maybe let's start with something that is, um, I first heard at a, at a HOPA talk probably six or seven years ago, that was not something that was on the radar when I was uh, in the residency and using this drug, and it has to do with managing uh, activity and therapeutic drug monitoring with asparaginase. Absolutely. So we talked about we have an effective drug here that works, but 
how do we know if it's actually working at, for each patient, right? So that's that's the question that's in play here. So something that we can do to monitor efficacy of asparaginase products is looking at something uh, that's called the asparaginase activity levels. So you're measuring that uh, in, in each patient. So asparaginase activity levels, enzyme activity levels can be measured. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about the history here, why maybe that's not that common. It's pretty tedious to, to measure this for each patient. One, for example, at USC, uh, we have to send this lab to Virginia. That's, there's not many labs out there that measure this. Some sites have their own, uh, but it's very, uh, it's not that common and it's pretty expensive. Another thing, it has to be put on ice. So you pull the samples on the patients and you have to put it on ice because you want to avoid the ongoing enzyme activity in vivo over there. So how do we know if the drug is working? One, we look at these enzyme activity levels and we want this enzyme activity to be at least 0.1 uh, units per ml. So that tells us that uh, we're fully depleting uh, the plasma asparagine, right? And really that's what's used in clinical trials as well to look at efficacy. So you're, you're pulling these levels and the FDA has, uh, really looked at these numbers for approval of various asparaginase products. So you want those activity levels to be greater than 0.1. And we measure this by looking at the trough or the nadir uh, of the asparaginase in the body when it's clearing. So for pegylated products, that's about 14 days. For non-pegylated products, that's about 48 to 72 hours. So you're pulling these levels at that time and checking the activity. Okay. Now, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, some variation in dosing product to product. What are maybe some of the take-home points without getting into maybe all the granular details about dosing, particularly with regards to maybe uh, dose capping, you know, in our AYA population, or, or maybe when you might deviate from the labeled dosing schedule? Yeah, so um, a couple of things here. So one being that the native products and non-pegulated products, you do have to, of course, give more frequently. Uh, so I'll start off maybe with the uh, Irwinia-derived one, which is non-pegulated. So for example, Rylase, which is on the market right now, uh, per the package insert, as I mentioned, you're giving it 25 milligrams per meter squared intramuscularly every 48 hours. Uh, now there is new data released from ASH though, uh, which changes this to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday dosing. So you're giving this 25 milligrams per meter squared on Monday and Wednesday, but then 50 milligrams per meter squared on Friday to get you through that weekend, right? Then you look at the pegulated products. Uh, so for example, Oncospar or peg aspergenase. You're given this about every two weeks. Um, and the dosing does differ uh, depending on the age group that we're talking about. So younger patients, they can tolerate asparaginase a little bit more than some of our older population where they have more side effects, right? So you're talking about 2,500 international units per meter squared. And for uh, adults greater than 21 years of old age or AYAs, uh, you're looking at 2,000 uh, per meter squared. Um, and so, and then you look at Asparlas, which is indicated in a pediatric population up to uh, 21 years old also, and that's given every three weeks at 2,500 units per meter squared. Okay, so let's tie this together now. Our dosing with our therapeutic drug monitoring, you mentioned that our, our, our goal is an enzyme activity of, uh, of um, greater than 0.1 units per mil. So what happens if 
you know, you, you're not meeting your goal here with our dosing. Do we increase the, the total dose? Do we decrease the frequency? Uh, how do we use that those levels to, to manage patients? Sure. So first off, what does that mean? So if you're not hitting that 0.1 marker, then you're really not depleting most of the asparagine in the body, which essentially means the drug is not working to its full effect. And the cancerous cells, the leukemic cells are still able to function and pull the asparagine from the plasma. So we want that number to be greater than 0.1. So there are a couple of different reasons why we might see that high of a level. It's typically not up to the dosing. So, you know, some patients, for example, uh, don't respond as well because they're having um, uh, an allergic reaction to the asparagine. So what's happening is the antibodies are actually binding to the drug and blocking the enzymatic sites, the active sites of the drug, which can limit the efficacy of the drug. Uh, so there are different techniques that we can talk about uh, where we can actually look and try to figure out why uh, someone's not responding as well to the asparagine, asparaginase. Okay. So let's transition now into kind of our, our toxicities. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the patient with ALL might produce antibodies against this drug. And that makes sense because this is a foreign protein. It's a bacterial enzyme. It's bacterial protein that we're giving to these folks. So of course you could potentially see hypersensitivity reactions with all these products. So tell us, you know, what are we looking for in these hypersensitivity reactions? Sure. So I think the toxicities and what we're diving into now, uh, into now it's going to be important to discuss. And I think that pharmacists play a key role here as well, starting off with hypersensitivity. So this one, we really need to keep a close eye on as pharmacists. So Incidence here about 10 to 30%, depending on the product you use, pegylated form or, or not. Uh, but those high grade, grade three or four hypersensitivity reactions occurred about 10% of patients. Now, there are two types of hypersensitivity reactions one, allergic type, and two, the non allergic type. So, when we talk about the differences here, we'll start out talking about the non allergic type. So those symptoms that you typically see are like flushings and maybe mild hypotension. Um, and these are typical reactions that you see, for example, with rituxan. Patients are not necessarily having an allergic reaction to rituxan. Most patients will have a non-allergic reaction to rituxan. And that's mainly due to maybe some of the excipients. And in this case, the uh, for uh, aspergenase products, that's a result of probably the ammonia that we mentioned earlier in the podcast where you're breaking up aspergine and one of the products there is ammonia, right? So that ammonia can cause some of those non-allergic type reactions. Then you talk, and these can see, be seen by the way at the first infusion. So you're given the drug right away and patients can have these uh, non-allergic reactions at the first dose. Then you have the allergic type reactions. So these ones we have to play a, a closer eye on. Uh, so for example, similar to penicillin, where you won't see the allergic type reactions on the first dose typically. This happens on the second, third dose where you probably see these reactions. So these allergic reactions are caused by an antibody response um, where these patients are probably having, you know, more prominent uh, signs of anaphylaxis. Even it can be lower grade with rashes and you can also see hypotension there as well. And again, main distinction there, it's those are antibody directed reactions. Um, and typically you won't see these at the first dose, uh, when patients first get exposed, you'll see them later on in the line. 
And one of the reasons that we talked about the the source of these drugs is if you are having an, an, a, a true allergic IgE mediated to uh, a drug that's derived from one bacteria, it would make sense to switch to a different product from a different bacteria, correct? That's absolutely correct. So one of the reasons why patients are getting these reactions could be from where the derivation is from. So for example, from the E. coli derived aspergenase products. So if patients are having an allergic type reaction to the E. coli derived aspergenase products, the recommendation is to switch to a non-E. coli derived one. For example, the Arwinia chrysanthemum derived, uh, derived rylase product. Okay. And we can prevent these with some, you know, your kind of your standard cocktail of, you know, um, um, it, you know, infusion reaction, pre-medication, so to speak. Is there anything else besides that that you can do to prevent these? Yeah. So this is important to, to talk about here as well, John. So, um, you know, if it is an allergic type reaction, um, you know, you don't want to just brush it off and give more pre-meds to maybe just get by. And the reasoning is, and we, we talked about this briefly, is that if you're having an allergic type reaction, your body's making antibodies to the drug and it's probably binding to it and it's causing it not to be that effective. So you're blocking the binding sites and the drug is really not working that well. So in these cases, when you think you might be having an allergic type reaction or you wanna confirm that the drug is working, we should be pulling these aspergenase levels to make sure that the drug is in fact working. In certain circumstances, we have something called silent inactivation, which is sounds kind of scary, uh, but essentially what's happening there is the patient's having an allergic reaction, but visibly you're not noticing any of those symptoms on the patient. So they're not having any anaphylactic type reactions, even maybe they're having a mild rash, but it's really not that prevalent. So in those cases, the drug is not working, but you can't really tell that the patient's having an allergic response to the drug. So, you know, if we are increasing the pre-meds to the patient, which is something that we can do, and I would recommend doing that for non-allergic type reactions, I would recommend pulling an uh, aspergenase level to just make sure that it's the drug is still working. And if the drug is not working, uh, or we're concerned about silence and activation, uh, potentially switching to um, uh, rylase is, is definitely an option in this case. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, the rate of severe, so grade three or four um, hypersensitivity is three or four to 10%, 10 to 20 for others. So it's more common that you're going to see an infusion reaction or hypersensitivity reaction that is more like, I've got some itching. Um, I'm a little flushed. I'm not hypotensive, no shortness of breath. Um, and that could either be allergic mediated or non-allergic, right? And and so it seems like what you're saying is one of the ways you would differentiate that is looking at that asparaginase activity. And if you're still having asparaginase activity, or, or I'm sorry, you're not having enough asparaginase activity, um, the problem is that the patient's own antibodies are preventing the drug from working and you need a new approach. Exactly. We talked about how important this drug is. And when you're if the drug is not working, you're not doing the correct service to the patient. The last thing we want to do is give a drug to a patient that can be potentially toxic and it's not really doing anything for them, right? So I'm always an advocate for checking these levels. Yes, it can be a little bit difficult at some institutions, but you know, we talk about how do we treat our own family members. I would definitely check an aspergenase level for them, make sure the drug is working. Um, and if it's not working, we can move on to the next option. Okay. All right. 
Anything else you want to say about hypersensitivity or allergic reactions before we move on to other uh, toxicities? No, I mean, I think we covered a great deal of it. And there's been a debate going on about pre-medications, right? So before Rylase came out, the uh, Erwinia-derived option, there was really not many options out there. So if a patient had an allergic reaction, one, you can desensitize them, right? Especially if it was an anaphylactic type reaction, take them to the ICU, give small doses, but there is still no guarantee that the drug is actively working for them. Um, so we would, you know, we didn't have many options out there. We'd pump them up with pre-meds, hope they tolerate it. But now in the age where we have an option within this past year, we have another option to use for these patients. You know, I'm a big fan of limiting the pre-meds. The reason is so we can catch those cases of a, an allergic reaction. So it could be mild, but if you're pre-medding with Benadryl, uh, with Tylenol, maybe you're not catching these things. So I'd rather catch these cases with limited pre-meds upfront and take action then. But if we confirm that it's an allergic type reaction, a non-allergic type reaction, where it's just an infusion related type reaction, then yes, pre-medding I think is key. Okay. Now I'm not familiar with a lot of these uh, PEDS, AYA regimens in, in detail. Um, does does the asparagine often fall on a same day that you would be giving steroids as part of steroids as part of your uh, your therapy? So sometimes a steroid, in other words, sometimes it's not really a pre-med, it's actually part of your backbone treatment. Is that the case in some of these regimens? Yes. So it really depends on the regimen, but there are a few regimens where, I mean, patients are on steroids throughout most of the treatment course. So yeah. And, you know, you're combining steroids with other pre-meds, so it can mask a lot of those hypersensitivity reactions. So, you know, that's a definitely an important point to keep in mind when we're treating these patients. Okay. So while, so while the hypersensitivity reactions have a lot to do with the body reacting to the drug, we have to go back and think about our mechanism here and that asparagine is depleting an amino acid, which is needed to make protein. And maybe it also inhibits uh, some protein synthesis. Uh, and even though our cells are supposed to be able to make our own asparagine, you still deplete that asparagine pool. Um, you know, we, we kind of can lump a lot of the other toxicities loosely under maybe lack of protein synthesis. So let's start with um, hepatotoxicity, which I know the last patient we saw that we gave this two years ago had some really bad hepatotoxicity. And I went on a whole deep dive in the literature, and a lot of it was associated with glutamine toxicity, which, as I mentioned, mirrors uh, asparaginine um, um, chemically. So tell us about hepatotoxicity. Um, you know, I know one huge risk factor is age. That's a lot of the reason why we don't use it above that AYA population. So tell us more about this, this liver risk. Yeah. John, you covered the mechanism there really well. Um, and you mentioned age. Um, and I, I, I would say this, you know, I mentioned one of the roles of the pharmacist is really to educate other providers to, to learn how to deal and mitigate these adverse effects, right? Hepatotoxicity is pretty prevalent. Um, but, you know, there are things that we can do to help mitigate this and manage this because we know the efficacy is great. So we want to keep these patients on this drug. So incidence is pretty high. So you look at, for example, um, uh, transaminitis, hyperbilirubinemia, goes around uh, maybe a close to 50% of patients will develop this. Now, and is that because when I was in school, right, hepatotoxicity was not on the radar of toxicities. It was the stuff we're going to talk about next. It wasn't hepatotoxicity. So I feel, I, I, you know, I wonder if this literature or, you know, has grown as asparagus moved 
like a lot of drugs, after you move from from this patient population to a real world, real world or an expanded patient population, you see more of these side effects. So these numbers you're saying, is this all ALL or is this mostly adult? Is it AYA? Um, you know, is it less in kids than it, than we see in, in adults or the AYA, AYA population? Yeah. So, you know, we are getting a better understanding of asparaginase and how patients deal with it, specifically now that we're using it more often in the adult population. So hepatotoxicity, as you mentioned, one of the risk factors is age. So we do see this more commonly in adult patients, right? Greater than 45 years uh, old or patients older than 45 years of age, you see a higher risk there. Besides age, uh, you can also see a higher risk for patients with obesity or BMI greater than 30, patients who are getting a higher cumulative dose. Uh, so there are some of those risk factors there. Anything you can do to prevent this? You know, is there, are there any recommendations or protocols, you know, you mentioned that dose and, and obesity. So do you, do, do we do any dose capping, any other preventive strategies that have been used successfully? Yeah. So I, I will mention this, John, I think the hepatotoxicity adverse effect that we're seeing here uh, looks more scary than it actually is. So this most commonly occurs after the first dose. Um, and typically it's reversible uh, from all the patients I've seen. Um, and you know the literature shows this as well, that it is reversible. And interesting enough, you typically see this on the first dose, but then you know it's transient and it'll go away. And then you'll give the dose again and patients won't really have any issues later on. So recurrence is not that common. Um, so management for the most part is just holding this virginase, waiting for the lab laboratory abnormalities to go back down. For example, you wait for the bilirubin to go back down um, and really just resume therapy after that, making up some potential missed doses there. Prevention, uh, there is a couple options. Yes, we can dose caps, especially if for those patients that have those risk factors, decreasing the dose for some of them. Uh, also uh, dealing with L-carnitine. So there is literature out there that supports the use of L-carnitine. And what that essentially is doing, it's artificially decreasing the bilirubin. So mechanistically, you're not really helping the liver that much. You're just kind of deflating that number a little bit. So I, I personally don't use it for our, my patients, but I know uh, sometimes it is used. Treating the lab, not the patient, sounds like. Definitely. That's a, there's probably an ICD-10 code for that. Um, <laughs> all right. What about pancreatitis? Sure. So I think this is really the most dangerous adverse effect out there. And it's really the most, the main reason I would say that you'd have to DCS virginase. So first off, looking, keeping a close eye on your patients whenever you're treating them uh, with asparaginase, looking for the signs and symptoms and monitoring the amylase and lipase is very important and holding it if it starts trending up. So there are risk factors that are similar here. So older age and cumulative, high cumulative doses of asparagine are risk factors. Um, management, pretty straightforward, you hold it. Uh, you hold a drug or you can permanently discontinue if it was a severe case of pancreatitis and you treat the pancreatitis. Uh, one thing I will note here, there are some providers specifically in the pediatric setting where sometimes we consider rechallenging patients. So when you talk about maybe a potentially severe case or a mild case, depending on the patient, um, you know, the first instinct is let's continue. Let's never use this drug again. 
And again, we talk about the importance here of continuing patients, and we see that overall survival in our pediatric population. So if we do decide on rechallenging a patient that has pancreatitis, we consider using a short-acting pancreatitis, uh, short, <laughs> excuse me, a short-acting aspergenase product. So that if you have pancreatitis, it'll be a short-acting pancreatitis. <laughs> Short-acting pancreatitis, exactly. So uh, you, you want the drug to clear potentially if a patient develops pancreatitis again. So we'd rather use a non-pegylated form, for example, using Rylase uh, instead of a uh, peg aspergenase uh, to clear it out of the body just in case a patient develops pancreatitis again. And I don't know this, um, but going back to the mechanism that you're potentially you know, depleted amino acid, going to impair protein synthesis, what does the pancreas do? It's making insulin, which is a protein. It's making amylase, lipase, proteus. These are enzymes. These are proteins. So it's got to, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if if you did a deep dive, you found somehow this is associated with decreased protein synthesis here. Um, and that's that's the case too for the um, for the thrombosis. You know, these coagulation factors that our, our our body is making these are proteins. So tell us about the risk of of clotting with this. And this is a little bit distinct than what we see. Um, Oh yeah, of course they have, they have cancer. They're on chemo. They're going to have blood clots. This is a distinct mechanism than, than what we see from maybe cisplatin induced endothelial damage or you know, the patient on chemo and, and they're, you know, they're just not moving because they're fatigued afterwards. So tell us about that with uh, this product. Sure. It's a different mechanism. Uh, definitely. So what you're seeing here is a decrease in antithrombin three. Um, and that's really the cause of the thrombosis that we're seeing in some of these patients. So the incidence right, is around 20%. Um, and we're really more commonly seeing this in the adult setting rather than the pediatric setting. So again, with every uh, adverse effect, you have some certain risk factors. Uh, older age, obesity, and patients that have a mediastinal mass uh, are at risk, higher risk of a thrombosis. Now, management is pretty straightforward here. Uh, you suspend asperginase and you treat with full dose anticoagulation for around six weeks or so. You treat the clot and you resume therapy. So it's not a reason to permanently continue discontinue the drug. So really treatment of the clot is the mainstay uh, for thrombosis. And it would not be surprising for these folks to have thrombocytopenia during this period. So, so at, at USC, do you guys kind of do full dose anticoag, anticoag down to platelets of 50? Um, or, or kind of what's your, I mean, everything's patient specific, what's your kind of usual management strategy in, in thrombocytopenia? Yeah, so a, a couple of points here. So one, you know, sometimes you talk about prevention of thrombosis, maybe for uh, uh, patients that are older. That is controversial, not often used, but let's say, for example, a patient already has a clot, got thrombosis. Uh, hold parameters can differ for ALL. Uh, so for example, for the most part, I would say the typical hold parameter for platelets are between 25 and 30. Um, so, you know, holding the anticoagulation of platelets fall below there. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, if we're inhibiting the production of antithrombin-3, which is one of our body's um, uh, anticoagulants, seems like we might also decrease production of other proteins that help our body clot. So we can also see some bleeding associated with this drug. How common is that? It's not that common. So thrombosis is definitely more common than patients uh, bleeding or having a hemorrhage. And in my opinion, this hemorrhage or bleeding is primarily not caused by the asparaginase product itself. I think it's caused by 
most of the other chemotherapy that you're giving. Again, you're not giving asparaginase by itself. You're giving it as part of a multi-agent chemotherapy regimen that can decrease, a lot of those chemotherapies can decrease platelets. But you can also see low fibrinogen as well in some of these patients, so which can lead to bleeding. So if a patient is bleeding, uh, we can give cryoprecipitate for those patients. And you know, part of our lab uh, lab orders for patients on asparaginase is to check fibrinogen at least two times a week. Yeah. So you know, we've talked a lot about these side effects, and what you don't hear from an antineoplastic is you're not hearing myelosuppression, you're not hearing nausea and vomiting, you're not hearing these other kind of hallmark to toxicities, which is why in these combination chemo regimens, we try as best we can to avoid drugs that have overlapping toxicity profiles so we don't exaggerate the toxicity. But what are some of the other side effects we can see from this, uh, just real quick, that we, that, that we don't need to get into a ton of depth on? Absolutely. So quickly, um, hypertriglyceridemia is something that we can see for our patients. So we, we do hold uh, asparaginase if the triglycerides go above a thousand. We don't see this that often, but sometimes patients are put on fibrates to control the triglycerides specifically if it's going up over 600 or so. Um, so that's, uh, you know, a, a, a monitoring piece to uh, keep an eye on for patients that are on asparaginase products. Uh, the last thing is osteonecrosis. I personally have never seen it in my career, but uh, of course, uh, we do have to be mindful and watch out uh, for this adverse effect. All right. Now, it wouldn't be two pharmacists talking about a drug if we didn't talk about pharmacokinetics. So we know that, and you've mentioned that the pegylation leads to a longer half-life. Uh, anything else clinicians need to know um, with regards to either the absorption, which is, you know, it, it's not absorbed from the gut, we're not given it orally, but anything else they need to know about distribution or, or how the how the drugs eliminate any drug interactions with metabolism, things like that, that clinicians should be worried about. Yeah. So really the biggest point when we're discussing aspergenase products is the toxicity profile. Uh, but other than that, if I were to hit a couple of points here, one uh, would be, has a small volume of distribution. So it usually just resides in the vascular space, doesn't get distributed too much. Uh, in, in terms of metabolism, it's usually metabolized by proteolytic enzymes in the tissues. Um, and yes, we talked about, uh, pegulation is an important piece to talk about when we're talking about asparaginase products. So what the pegulation does is it increases steric hindrance. Um, and limits those uh, proteolytic enzymes from metabolizing the asparaginase product, therefore extending the half-life. Um, and we're not at the point yet where the Erwinia products are pegulated, but I anticipate that coming on the market in the next uh, few years where we have a then pegulated version of Erwinia-derived asparaginase product. So that's something to look forward to. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Amir, for stopping by. I uh, really appreciate the knowledge. And uh, I, will, uh, I will see you on Twitter or maybe at an upcoming conference. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me on.